This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I knew that I hadn't played this guy before in the long resume, so you say yes, and you figure it out on the way there. And that's the thrill of working without a net. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. One thing I've always found fascinating about Jeff Daniels is the amount of range he has as an actor. I mean, this is a guy who cut his teeth in very serious traditional American theater and then transitioned into film and TV roles, including The Purple Rose of Cairo, Speed, of course, Dumb and Dumber, The Newsroom, 101 Dalmatians, Godless. Do you see what I mean by range? What's driving that range is really a sense of creative fearlessness, but it's not really jumping off the ledge per se. It's more like recognizing the blind spots in your craft, doing the work to improve, and then when the opportunity to stretch yourself comes up, not shying away from it. In our conversation, Jeff explains how he applied that strategy to his latest role in American Rust, and he also talks about his reprisal of Atticus Finch on Broadway and his music career that he doesn't mind you not knowing about. Mr. Daniels, thank you so much for joining me. I feel like I can't call you Jeff. I feel like I need to give the respect where it's due and say Mr. Daniels. Like Nice of you. It also ages me, but go ahead. <laughs> well, all right, we'll, we'll go with Jeff. But, you know, I, I always love to start, you know, these conversations by kind of taking it from the top, by asking me, like, what, what was it about acting that really took a hold of you? Like, why do we know you as an actor and not, you know anything else like what was it about acting that really sparked an interest for you it was something i was good at <laughs> something that came natural no i, I literally I live in a small town grew up in a small town and there was a high school director who did musicals she did one musical a, a school year and then would do a musical in the summer and it was kind of a thing to get in those but I never did. I was playing baseball. I was doing whatever. And then whatever, I, I saw one of those in high school and I want to, I want to do that. I was in choir so I could sing. I could carry a tune. And in a small town that, that, that passes for a musical performer. <laughs> and then she did Oliver and she said, I want you to do Fagin. And so I worked on that for six months. I watched the movie. I stole from Ron Moody um, she did Fiddler on the Roof after that. I watched the movie I stole from Topol. I just blatant stealing. Just in, <laughs> pretty good impression of Topol. Thank you very gonna... <laughs> much. And I knew what to do in front of 700 people in an auditorium. I wasn't nervous. I had timing that you either have or you don't. Mm. And I was good enough to keep going. And I did that in college, and then I got a break and got to go to Off-Broadway in New York. Everywhere I went, you can keep going. You succeeded mm. here. You, it's like a baseball player going through every stage of the minor leagues. Right. And then when I, by the time I looked up at the age of 30, I was finally doing movies after about eight years. And that's when I, I said, okay, I think I can make a living in this business. Mm. After right. Purple Rosa Cairo. Right. But it wasn't until then. And it was never about, oh, I must be an actor. I have to be an actor. 
I was just good at it, and I kept going until I would fail miserably and then stop doing it someday. (laughs) That was it. I love that. And, you know, I feel like we know you as this, you know, incredibly seasoned actor of stage and screen. But, you know, in the beginning of your career, was there an element of acting that was hard for you to grasp? You mentioned that you were really had good timing and there was something you were sort of a natural at. But knowing that there are so many things that go into being an actor and acting, was there any element that you that you kind of struggled with in the beginning? Um, not struggled with uh, later on. Uh, I made an adjustment. My heroes growing up were people like Peter Sellers, Mm -hmm. Dick Van Dyke, Jack Lemmon. They were bigger. They did a lot of comedy. Their, their actions, their facial expressions were bigger. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't come up with Brando. I mean, I, I love Pacino and Dog Day Afternoon. That was another, I, whatever that was, whatever Al Pacino's doing, it's not what I know. Mm. What I know is what Dick Van Dyke can do and Jack Lemmon. I'm I'm like doing that, gotcha. and you can see it in Something Wild. That's right. that's Jack Lemmon and Dick Van Dyke had a baby. That that's what Something <laughs> Wild is. But then it was a you know a couple you know decades in. There's an element of danger, or a secret or mystery that the great actors have in those roles, mm. and I didn't have that, and so I started doing things and certainly later on i mean in like performance like in godless frank griffin and godless how do you play that there's a danger there there's a darkness in there how do you play that and so to kind of find that Hmm. led to other things which ultimately is is a lot of what american rust is about with devil harris i remember we just finished shooting for five months and i remember you know bring the danger bring the Mm. danger bring the darkness all of that just just stuff to go into your head that is different than landing the joke or showing them what you feel i love that and i mean how do you bring that about because i think it's it's you know i would imagine that these are these are the character traits that are all like in the script on the page these are things that you kind of like flesh out and when you're developing the show talking it over with like the director or showrunner but like when it comes to actually portraying that like what what is that like where do you have to go to slip into that character to slip into that mood to like give that to give that character that air of mystery look this is this is adult make-believe yeah <laughs> you know we, we we grew up playing hey let's pretend we're sailors on a ship okay well this is you know you're getting paid to do it and so it's more fun instead of just pretending you're someone why don't you become them mm-hmm. and that's internal and that's whether you work out differently to feel a little differently, whether you learn his lines so that you can just roll them out of your mouth, and so now you're not even thinking about the lines, and now it's you're thinking like him. That's where the fun is. Hmm. If you got actors that are putting in that work, where, as I tell them, at six in the morning, you got to know it, and you got to know what you're going to do with it. Hmm. And then you put the other actor in there, and now you're bouncing off each other. Half of your performance is in the other actor, which is a fancy way of saying, listen, and then react. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, it's tennis. And then once you do that, everybody goes, oh my God, would you look at the chemistry? The magical mystery thing called chem. It's two actors listening to each other and taking the mirror down and just making it more about them. And, And 
I've really worked hard to get actors that were willing to jump off the cliff that is that first take. It, it makes it more lifelike because we listen to each other, mm -hmm. you know, versus waiting for someone to stop talking and give you your cue and exactly. do that thing that you practiced. You can kind of feel it takes away the falseness because you know you're so you're on you're playing defense in a way. It keeps you in the moment. Also, as an actor, I mean, I I, I did uh, blood work with Clint Eastwood, and Clint, one take. You're told coming in, he does one take. Don't ask for another. Maybe in the <laughs> six eight weeks I was there. I might have fumfered something, and maybe a couple of times he goes, you want another shot at that? Yeah, I, I could take a take two. That would be great. Let's go again. Take two. And you do it. Excellent. But, Clint Eastwood, by but, the way. <laughs> oh, here's the Clint story. We're driving up some two-lane road in California, and Clint, like, he just, get my camera guy with a camera. And so you get the camera and the guy in the back seat. He, do we have sound? Yeah, we're mic'd. And he, like people, he's, we've left, we're gonna shoot scene 99, going up the thing, got the camera guy back there. So they've shot Clint from the back seat, looking from there and he's done his thing. And so now he's moving over to me. And I, the car I'm driving is a boat. Right. It used to be a boat. It's like, and the steering wheel is swaying. I think he said it was the car he used in Dirty Harry and that he just kept it because it, and he uses it. And I think I'm not, don't. Anyway, we're driving up. Camera guy's now behind Clint. He's shooting me back like this. He goes, Jeff, I can see myself in the camera with the, in the side view mirror. Could you move that? Could you reach out? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So I reach out to do the side view mirror. I look up. I see the word Kenworth. There's a semi truck. I am in the wrong lane. Oh. <laughs> I am, uh, I see a hand come over, grab the wheel, boom, boom like that, boom, there goes Kenworth. I look over at Clint, Clint goes, that was close. <laughs> True story. Unbelievable. All right, so Clint Eastwood out here saving lives. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Point for you. A hero in real life. Amazing. He saved a stupid actor from killing all three of us. There you go. <laughs> That's all that matters. And you know, honest and we can't and we can't forget, kind of in the midst of you with your film career, is like you founded the Purple Rose Theater Company, which is, you know, which is amazing. And I feel like that's been around since what, in nineteen ninety one? And so, you know, for those who don't know, you know, because I think it's one of those things like where it can kind of get lost in, you know, all the huge titles and made an amazing projects that you've done. Like like I'd love to hear a little bit about like why you started the Purple Rose Theater Company. Acting was never going to be enough. That, that same woman who put me in those musicals saw me years and years later and said, you know, with the playwriting and the music and the all these things I'm doing, she goes, acting was never going to be enough for you. I wanted to be a playwright. Once I went through Circle Rep off-Broadway in the 70s and was hanging around all these playwrights, each and every one of them walking around in the middle of rewriting a second act, living, breathing writers. I'd never been around that. I didn't, that energy of, we're doing a reading of his third draft and the second act doesn't work and we need you to comment on it. Huh. Uh, and really great people who were, str the struggle it took to write a play so that you could even just go into rehearsal. 
that fascinated me. And so when I moved back to Michigan to raise the family, but also what I thought when the career ends that I'll, you know, when they call me on Tuesday and go, you're over, uh, I, I could go, well, I'm home already. It's <laughs> <laughs> not like you got to leave LA or leave New York. So I, that, I was just so fatalistic. I missed that creative energy. And I knew that there were people around me here in this corner of Michigan that had either gone to New York or LA and didn't get the breaks I did. They were good, but they were capable of being great if they knew what I knew, having worked with people like Merrill and Clinton, many, many others, come through, you know, Circle Rep and learned that kind of highest level acting that really was a descendant of Stanislavski and Sanford Miner. Circle Rep was like the third part of that chain. I can give you that. That 21-year-old kid I used to be who left Chelsea, Michigan, not having that and went to New York as a high school, college musical actor and then got slapped <laughs> sitting in those acting classes. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we're back, Jeff dives into his new show, American Rust, and his extensive music career that you may not know about. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Let's get into your new show, American Rust. You play Del Harris, who's the chief of police in this small Rust Belt town where there's just basically a lot of decent people making terrible choices. On top of an unraveling murder mystery that's shaking the town, there's this pervasive cloud of the opioid crisis hanging over everything. So what pulled you into a show like this? I knew that I hadn't played this guy before in the long resume. I also knew that I knew him. I grew up with him. And part of me was him. And I didn't know which parts were which. So you say yes. And you figure it out on the way there. And that's the thrill of working without a net. Uh, I took Comey rule because I didn't have a clue as to how I was going to do it. That's the motivating factor at this age. There aren't career moves going on anymore. It's more just about the roles that interest you that you don't know how you're going to do them. Stories well told are stories that when you stop after episode four, you turn to the audience and go, what happens next? And they're wrong. Same thing after five and six. If you have a story that's unpredictable and yet continues to be plausible and believable and make perfect sense, oh my God, what is it going to, you've got a good, you, you've told it well. Hire people who can do that. Get to work with people like Aaron Sorkin who know how to do that. Scott Frank on Godless. Danny Futterman on Looming Tower and American Rush. Get with those guys who think like that, who aren't trying to make formula who aren't trying to be predictable so that you're comfortable with what you're seeing. And you can go get a sandwich in the kitchen and then you can come back and you haven't really missed anything. We want you to miss things if you go to get the sandwich. Got it. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that the character of Del Harris, who you play, was like a character you hadn't encountered before in your career. And so, like, how did you find your way into that character? I guess, like, what were those challenges that you had in, in bringing him to life? Because he is a very 
he's a, he's got he's got a lot going on. Like and you you slow as you watch it, you know the the layers start to you know peel back a little bit. But like he's got he's very guarded, but he, there's a lot happening. So I just want to hear a little bit about finding your way into that character, bringing that character to the life, and how like how did you manage that? If, if you look for things that you have in common with him, you're aware of the things that you don't and that you'll have to find your way to those. But find the things that you do have in common with him. You know, is he a man of few words? Find that, you know, I'm from the Midwest, and even though I'm yapping today, I mean, there. you put me in a... I remember being in party situations in New York City early on and not really knowing how to carry on conversations very well with people about stuff. So that, that kind of shyness or privacy or, or that private mm. thing... Grab that, pour some gas on it, and light it. Yeah. <laughs> now that's going. Opioids. I mean, who hasn't been on a pharmaceutical in this country right. that they wanted to get off? Right. And and there was a time, and I in the research I did, there was a time when doctors were handing them out like candy. Yeah. Because they were getting you know ten bucks for every pill they sold or something prescription. They were making money on it, and so. You know, I knew how hard it was to come off one of those. Mm -hmm. I mean, after 15 years, just going, hey, you know, I'm. Why am I taking? Because you know, somebody told you at the age of 49, you're in a hole, you're in a dark hole. Uh, I don't know. I guess you're going to turn 50, right? <laughs> well, pretty soon, I guess. Here, take some Celexa. Hmm. And all of a sudden, you're on 40 milligrams of what? Why yeah. am I? And you can't remember what day it is and yeah. then so you drop it down to 20 but you try to come off cold turkey on that shit not happening so i i you know and dell has dell's got bigger opioid issues than i do but it's the same thing it's that trying to come off it trying to go cold trying to wean yourself off that stuff because it is addictive mm -hmm. you know and they've got you they they you're hooked yeah so uh, you find the things that you have in common with them and then just kind of let him take over. Mm. Yeah. Let him do the lines, do, learn the lines, learn who he is, wear, get the clothes on, drive his truck, wear his coat. And then if you get out of the way, you get to become him. Mm. Now you're thinking like him. Right. And now you're somebody else. And a lot of it is subconscious. You read a lot about Pittsburgh. You read a lot about opioids. You read, you know... You understand what happened to him in the Iraq War, why he has PTSD. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was... So I had experienced that. Right. So I could take... I knew what that felt like, and so I took that and poured it into Dell, lit mm -hmm. it, and went. So you use yourself in a way, and then to get you to the stuff that, that you have an experience that only he has, and then they roll camera, and you catch it, and you're done. Right. That's an that's incredible and God, speaking of characters i know that you're reprising your role in to kill a mockingbird as atticus finch you know for like i think like three months and so you know you had you had this year of being this this iconic character and making your own and you and uh aaron sorkin did a fantastic job in doing that and but I, I am curious to know i mean what is it for you as an actor and i know this is very common with you know stage productions what is it like living with a character for so long? It's an endurance test. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's eight times a week for a year. <sighs> yeah. You learn, that's muscle memory. You learn 
to let him take you. You don't you don't worry about last night's show. You don't even worry about tonight's show. You do you get your little routine, just like batters do getting into the batter's box. The same thing every night. You just kind of get it so you can try to hopefully get into that same place where you can get into that groove, push you down, and the dominoes just fall all the way through the show. Just let him take you. Let him take you. Don't fight it. We don't care if you're tired. We don't care if you did it last night. Tonight's just let him take you. And and then listening, just listen to the other actors. Hear If you start to fade away, listen to every single word they're saying. It'll pull you in. You know, little tricks like that. But Mockingbird's the kind of show that, that even though post-George Floyd, it's, you know, it, it's white point of view. It's white privilege, it's white blindness. Uh, I, I still think it's relevant. I think white people are the ones who need to hear it. And that's predominantly the Broadway audience, at least for the Mockingbird show. And, and I'll never forget every night getting to that closing argument and trying to convince the defense lawyer and Tamra and the jury and the judge. And then I finally, at the last third of it, turned to the audience and I see 1,400 sophisticated Broadway theater goers, for the most part, not moving. All these white faces, every not moving. And you're treating them like they're the 12 angry white jurors sitting there like that. You shame them into what's about to happen. And people, you know, white people are coming to grips with the fact that there's a whole history to this country that we weren't taught. It's the white people in the middle that need to understand, much like Atticus in the play, you can't sit on your porch and just raise your kids and not be involved with the lynching that's going to happen on Thursday night. You can't look the other way anymore. You can't just say, yeah, I want my taxes lowered, so I'm just going to vote that way anyway. So that's all I hear. None of it involves you. Know, well, it involves you now. And I keep saying, you know, God, if Jesus would come back. <laughs> here he's coming. I keep hearing about the second coming. I would love Jesus to come back, oh, I don't know, tomorrow afternoon about three. <laughs> and I would love him to walk around and put a camera on him going, Jesus, what do you think? How we just How are we doing on that do unto others thing? How are we doing? Scratching his head and just disbelief. Like, what happened? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, Jesus, but were you a white person or were you Arabic? Oh, what, oh you were you were Middle Eastern. Oh, oh you were shaking the oh, table now. I know. I don't. I don't. What's going on? Well, we got a boy. We'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> There's a play you need to write. Jesus coming back and realizing he's not white. Not a bad, <laughs> idea. Not a bad idea. <laughs> but you know, I know as we wind down this podcast, like I want, I I see all the guitars in your background, and I want to talk about your music career because you know I think again, some people may not realize that you are an accomplished guitarist and singer. You mentioned you do have like a very wonderful voice, and you have like six albums under your belt like it's 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 amazing so for you i mean like what what is it about making music that you know kind of like what kind of creative outlet does that provide that you may not get from acting uh 100 control i control the writing the playing the performance the you know everything especially if you, there's no band it's just you in a, in a chair with an acoustic guitar there is an art to that 
to holding an audience for 100 minutes with just that acoustic guitar and a chair, that's it. And that's hard. I've seen Stevie Goodman do it. He was one of the guys that influenced me early. Saw him at the bottom line. For me, people like Arlo Guthrie coming up. And then you get into the blues, and then, then you, you know, Sunhouse, Skip James, and Robert Johnson. You learn how to play like 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 those guys, and and that takes you. It's just fun, and I don't. It's different. I don't need a record label. I just yeah. need a website, you mm -hmm. know. And you throw it up there, and enough people got interested and stayed interested that I would do it more. And you know, we haven't made any money on them, but we've broken even. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just a creative outlet for me. That uh, it's like me painting. Yeah. It's like Jim Carrey. I was talking to Jim. Jim, Jim's, Jim, suddenly he's doing these paintings over the last couple of years that are phenomenal. Yeah, they're really good. I told him, I said, why are you, why are you in this business anymore? Why? Because <laughs> he's, I, oh, I can't stand it. I can't stand what I'm doing. It's, a, it's just, oh, I hate it. I don't think, I, I said, don't. Just paint. Look at the artist you are, man. Just right. go. So and that's what the music is for me. And the playwriting is for me. It's, it's. It's it's the things I don't get to do as an actor. Yeah. More creative control and this is the voice and this is Yeah, here's a song called Trumpy Dumpty Blues and um make of it what you will. You know, I I always love to close out the podcast by asking my guests the same question is, you know, at this point in your career, how have you come to define creativity? Freedom to imagine. Mm. Oh, I love yeah. That. Turning it loose. Turning it loose. Because there, there are so many people in this world, but, but crazily still, that thing that only you can see as an artist, only you can see. Hmm. If man could fly, but he can't, except when he's being artistic, hmm. art is man getting wings and flying. That's kind of what it is. I keep saying I'm going to like have, you know, a board of my favorite quotes from that question just somewhere in my apartment because that's a good one. That is a good visual reference to that, to a good visual answer to that question. So amazing. And Jeff, I thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. As always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. See you soon.